Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you, who once were far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law and its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, this whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. The word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Testing, one, two. A little bit loud there. Thank you, Joanna, for reading the scripture today. Good morning, everybody. How are we doing today? All right. Uh, you know, today is uh, special because um, at 3.30, we're going to have a special um, once-in-a-lifetime second service here today. Um, how many of you guys are going to... Oh, I'm just kidding. I know it's the Super Bowl. Um, yeah. Well, we were going to weed out, the, you know, who was, who's really in the uh, church right there with the, the uh, impromptu special service. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Um, Super Bowl Sunday, uh, who are you going for? Patriots. Not the Patriots. <laughs> Justin Timberlake, that's who we're going for. Um, so I know it's a big game. I'm excited about uh, hopefully watching that as well. I actually don't have a team picked out, um, but I know that when you do root for a team, a lot of times there's some division that comes with that. And if your team loses, there's a lot of, uh, of resentment and uh, negative feelings, and you might be in need of reconciliation with people who cheered for the other team. And so today we're going to talk about reconciliation. All right? Like that? Like that right here. Um, we are in Ephesians. We're a few weeks into our series on this uh, this letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in and around Ephesus in the first century. And we're really getting into the heart of the letter, the guts of the letter now. Um, for the last few chapters, we've been talking about this new life that we have in Christ. Or we've been talking about the gospel. And it's just been rich. It's been amazing. It's just been, um, for me at least, just hearing these reminders of truths that are that 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 Jesus has given me and has secured for us. Um, and now we're moving from talking about um, the new life we have in Christ to the new community that we have in Christ. We're moving from not just the gospel, but we're talking about the community that the gospel creates, which is the church. And the first half of this chapter really talks about us being reconciled with God uh, individually. And then this half of this chapter talks about us being reconciled with each other within the church um, as different groups. And Paul starts out with this idea of tension, and he uses the word hostility. He says that there's hostility between two groups, and really the word we would use for that today would be hate. There's hate that has been between two groups in the first century church, and the groups are Jews and Gentiles, people who have had the Old Testament and the, and the covenants of God, and they've known about, um, they've had the law, and they've had the temple uh, for hundreds and hundreds and even thousands of years. They've been connected to God. And then Gentiles, which just is a word for everyone who's not Jewish, um, who ha hasn't had that. And, and these groups are together, and they're clashing. And if you look into history, there was 
hostility or hate between those two groups. If you read Philo or Josephus, some of the the foremost historians of that time, Jewish men, um, they said that Gentiles would mock Jewish men for this whole idea of circumcision, which for the Jews was their primary symbol of we are uh, we are part of God's people and we are connected to him. And Gentiles would mock them for that. And then what Paul mentions in this first verse that we read today, um, the Jews, on the other hand, would call the Gentiles the uncircumcision, um, which was actually a derogatory term that literally meant foreskin. We just went there. <laughs> I have everyone's attention now. All right. But that's what they called people that weren't like them, right? So you've got just a little hint of hostility between these groups. Actually, the, emperor, the Roman emperor Claudius' um, uh, tensions had heightened a few years before Paul went and ministered in Ephesus. And the emperor actually kicked Jewish people out of Rome in the middle of the first century. But... Something was going on in this community that God was making called the church. The church was different because the church was the only place in the world and really in history where these two groups, Jews and Gentiles, were together and not only together and just putting up with one another, but actually loving one another and learning how to live together with love for each other. And if you look into the history, it is literally miraculous that this would happen. There's no other way that this would be happening. And so as we look at the passage today, I know it's talking about Jews and Gentiles, and we may not use those terms. It may not be a conflict that we're too familiar with, but this passage is really just a case study on a universal truth that we all have, which we all have the need for reconciliation. Our world needs reconciliation. There are hostile... Do I have to tell you guys this or do you know it? <laughs> There's hostile groups all around. We are fragmented. We are tribalized. We are told to divide. We are pitted against each other in every election and every news cycle. Every day. There's a flashpoint. You can just see a picture and then the arguments reach a fever pitch. In Twitter-sized thoughts. <laughs> right? And we're just barking at each other more than we're talking with each other. We need this message today. Because the church has the greatest power, the greatest means of reconciliation in the world. And we need to be leaders in it. And this passage highlights that. And as it does, there's, there's three paragraphs in this passage. And I want to focus on those um, by kind of putting them under the headings of uh, talking about where we were, who we are, and what we are. Where we were, who we are, and what we are. First, where we were. Verse 12. We were at verse 12, I guess. Uh, pardon me. Verse 12 starts with this. Remember, at that time, he's speaking, he's speaking to the whole church, but in this passage, he's speaking to Gentiles. And unless you're here and you're a Jewish believer, that's you. So that's, and that's me. I'm, I'm a Gentile, right? So this is to us. Remember at that time, you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel. See, in the Old Testament, really to be close to God, you had to be part of Israel. And if you were a Gentile and you wanted to get close to God, you had to basically become Jewish. You had to adopt the, the laws, so he's saying, before Jesus came, you were excluded from citizenship in Israel and you were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. Imagine they're new Christians and they've never read or seen or heard the Old Testament. They don't know the scriptures that these Jewish people who have been living out for a few thousand years. That's what he's saying. You are foreigners to the covenants of the promise. And then that last phrase, without hope and without God in the world. Without hope and without God in the world. I don't know about you, but that is one of the darkest and loneliest phrases I can think of. And yet, that is how the scriptures describes where we were spiritually before we knew Christ. There is something important about remembering where we were. Don't believe me? Ask Drake. 
started from the bottom. Now we're here. Started from the bottom. Now the whole team here. And I, I, I'm not one to judge, but I don't know if like starting as a nationally recognized teenage actor is the bottom, but, but it's important to remember where you were because if you don't remember where you were, there's no way you'll appreciate where you are. You'll never appreciate, if you don't remember what it was like to be far from God, there's no way that you're going to appreciate what it's like to be near to God. And some of you today, you know You know where you were when Jesus saved you. Some of you have this testimony. Your life was a wreck. Your life was in shambles. Maybe you were on drugs or maybe you were addicted. Maybe you were in broken relationship after broken relationship after broken relationship and God rescued you and redeemed you and brought you out. And then some of you, maybe, maybe it's not so stark. Maybe you don't have that testimony. Maybe you're like me and you used to wish that you had a more exciting testimony <laughs> because I grew up in church and, and I didn't have that whole like wild and out period where I just left God totally and then came back. And may, maybe it's harder for you to see or harder for you to remember or think of yourself as that phrase without hope and without God in the world. But according to God and according to his word, where were we spiritually without him? We were without hope and without God in the world. Vince talked about it last week so beautifully. And, and this passage, it begins with the word therefore. And, and one of the ways, you know, if you're reading scripture, one of the ways you're going to get the meaning, that one of the number one things is context, right? And so when you see the word therefore, you always ask, what is the therefore there for, right? There's a little tip for you, okay? But the therefore that he's talking about is everything that Vince preached about last week. We were dead in our sins, We were dead in our sins when God saved us. We were deserving of God's righteous wrath, but God, but God, rich in mercy because of his great love, even when we were dead in our trespasses, verses four and five, made us alive together. When we were dead, he made us alive, verses eight and nine, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing not by works, so that no one can boast. Vince said this last week, this famous quote, Jesus Christ did not come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. To paint this a little bit, in elementary school, I used to love playing basketball. And I know it's Super Bowl Sunday, I'm not going to use the football example today. I'm going to use basketball, so just forgive me. But uh, I don't know what grade I was in, fourth or fifth grade, I think. And um, there was a team that it was the best, it was all the best players in the team, and they also happened to be popular, and they called themselves the Chicago Bulls. And John Bowen was uh, uh, the, the captain of the Chicago Bulls. And so every day at recess, he brought the ball. He brought a good, a nice ball from home. Like it wasn't like the reset, the ones from the school. He brought a nice ball. And so this is the real game, right? On the real court. And I loved basketball, but I wasn't on that team. I wasn't popular. Or they didn't think I was good. I knew I was good enough, but they didn't think I was good enough, right? And I, let me tell you, I remember the day that I got invited to join the Chicago Bulls, right? <laughs> Because I'm running down the court, I'm, I'm, I'm on the left side, I still remember where I am on the court, right? And I'm going down the left side, outside the three-point line, right there in the corner, and, and for some reason, I don't know the whole situation, but I had to jump into a fadeaway three-pointer. I fall off of the court, like skin myself up, I don't even see the shot, which I sank it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and by the time I turn around to look at what's going on, there's John Bowen on one knee with his hand. He says, welcome to the Chicago Bulls. <laughs> welcome to the Bulls, Kenny. And here's the reason I tell you that. Because what happened in my heart once I got on the... Because I didn't tell you guys this. It wasn't like... The Bulls were so good. It wasn't like them versus another team. It was them versus everyone else in school who wanted to play basketball. So it was like five people versus 20. And they won every recess, you know. And here I am. I made it to the Bulls. Here's why I'm saying that. It can be easy in times like that to think it, 
dependent on me and my effort. And I'm afraid some, some of us sometimes think that way in our relationship with God. We think we got here somehow. I got good enough. God want, Jesus wanted to pick me to be on his team. He, he saw that I had the potential to really be a game changer for the kingdom. And so he said, hey, Kenny, welcome to, well, not the Bulls, but welcome to my team. <laughs> but we're told it's not by works so that no one can boast. See, if you don't know where you were, you will tend to look down on others who are not like you. If you think you were essentially a good person that Jesus found and invited to be on his team and then he saved you, instead of knowing that you were dead in your sins and unable to save yourself, if you think that, then you will judge others. It is inevitable. You will judge others and, and compare their goodness to your own and how good you think you are. You'll have every, and if you think that way, you'll, you'll think you have every right to keep judging others according to how good or how bad you think you are. That's our nature. That's what's happening in Luke 15, uh, the passage where if you've ever, ever heard the prodigal son or if you've ever heard the, 99, the 100 sheep and, and, and the shepherd leaves the 99 to find the one and Jesus says, there's, there's rejoicing in heaven when one sinner repents. You know, the, first, the par first part of that chapter was the Pharisees, the religious people, the teachers of the law who, who started off that chapter by saying this. It says, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. They muttered it. <laughs> this is kind of a fun word. Muttered. <laughs> They're upset that he welcomes sinners. But as I was reading this week, John, John Stott was writing about this, and he says, we ought to rejoice that Jesus welcomes sinners because sinners are the only people that Jesus welcomes. Did you catch that? Sinners are the only people that Jesus welcomes. Jesus said, Jesus said in Mark 2, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. If you think that you're not a sinner in need of Jesus, Jesus is not welcoming you. But if you are ready to say, yes, I need you and I'm broken. I'm poor in spirit. I need your grace. Jesus' arms are open wide for you. He said in Luke 7, but whoever, whoever has been forgiven little loves little. If you don't think you've been forgiven of that much, you're going to find it really hard to forgive other people who wrong you. So the scripture says, remember where you were. Remember you were without hope that God's going to wrap this all up for his glory and our good. Remember that you were without God. Not that you didn't believe in a God, but that you were totally opposed to his ways, living for your own way. Remember that you were without hope and without God in the world, but it's not to drag you down today. It's not, it's not to make you just feel horrible about yourself and, and tear down your self-esteem. It's so you can appreciate where you are. And we see that in the passage because the next verse says, but now, but now in Christ Jesus, verse 13, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's not by works. It's not by anything that you've done. It's not by your, your three-point fadeaway that you nailed. It's by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what happened on the cross. We were far away and deserved to be far away because we rebelled against God. And yet Jesus goes to the cross to pay our penalty so that we can be brought near, close, and have access to God. That's what the gospel is. And if you know that it wasn't your works that got you where you are, if you know that it wasn't your good name or your good reputation that got you where you are, it wasn't your efforts, if you know it's a free gift from God that was purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ for you, that does two things to your heart. First, it makes your heart burst with gratitude. It brings a deep humility. I know that if there is any good thing in me, it's from God anyways. I didn't muster it up. I remember where I was 
and look at where God has brought me totally by his grace. There's a holy humility that it puts in your heart. There's an, a sense of awe at the grace of God that he would extend that to me. And then second, it puts a burden in your heart for other people to know this grace, to know this hope that you have, to know this God that you know. If you remember where you were, you're going to have a heart for people who are now where you were. There are people you know who are without hope and without God in the world. And when you know where you were, you're going to have a heart to see them know that hope and to know that God. You can't sit idly by in a society that says, hey, keep your beliefs to yourself. Ironically, no one does that. <laughs> Everyone shares their beliefs. They just share it through politics instead of their religion. Or they share it on their Facebook feed. No one keeps their beliefs to themselves. I'm so tired of that. But if you know this grace in your heart, you're not going to be able to keep it to yourself. And then another thing, you're not going to be able to look down on other than Christian people. You're not going to be, because you know, where, you know where you were. You know you were dead in sin, apart from the grace of God. You're not saved because of your merits, but only by grace. Amen. This is why we've got to remember, as Paul urges us in this passage, remember where you were because you were far away, but now you've been brought near. And next, Paul moves on in the next paragraph to describe how reconciliation has been accomplished and why God did it. And that has to do with who we are. So I want to read a couple of those verses, starting at verse 14. That basketball example wore me out. I need my, I need my water. <laughs> Verse 14. For he himself is our peace. He himself is our peace. Who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. I'm going to stop there. First thing it says that Jesus Christ made the two groups one. What's he talking about? He's talking about Jews and Gentiles. And um, uh, thankfully for us, that's pretty simple because it covers everyone. <laughs> Jews and Gentiles. But he made the two groups one. And what he's saying is that he Jesus Christ, part of what he did for us is he created a whole new way of being human. He created a whole new humanity, and we see it in the church. That's why in 2 Corinthians it says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. How is this possible? How could this be? Think about the hostility between these groups. How? How? Well, the first thing it says is the dividing wall has been destroyed. That Jesus destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. If you do a little bit of research, there's, this is actually a reference to a physical wall in the temple. Paul's been to the temple a lot in his life. The temple in Jerusalem where Jews worshipped, it had been the center of, of the Jewish uh, religious uh, world for um, over a thousand years, you know, been rebuilt. But th this is where he's talking about. And in the temple, there's the kind of the temple, the most, you know, the Holy of Holies and, and the other temple courts. And then there's a barrier and some steps. And that barrier was the beginning of the Gentile court. And basically there's a wall in between the real temple where you can access the presence of God. And then there's a barrier. And this is where if you're a Gentile, you can come, but you have to look up and you can't go in. It was a barrier. And it had signs on it, warnings about you can't come in here. They found two of these inscriptions, archaeologists, one in 1871 and one in 1935. And, and here's what the inscription said in Greek. No foreigner may enter within the barrier and enclosure around this temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. There was no trial. It, it, there was guards there and you are going down <laughs> if you cross this barrier, this dividing wall 
of hostility. And this wall in the Jewish mind separated the good from the bad, the, the clean from the unclean, the safe people from the unsafe people. Now, that sounds pretty harsh, right? Um, they didn't really have the seeker-friendly model going on with this temple thing. But here's the thing. We still do this. We still do this. We have our own walls. We have our own dividing walls of hostility. We break up. We divide. We subdivide. We define ourselves by what we are and by what, who we're not. You do it all the time on the street. I do. It happens in an instant. You're not even thinking about it. You see a person and you size them up based on what they look like or based on how they smell or based on whether or not they seem like they have an education or not. We do it all the time. J.D. Greer says this, we may be politically correct enough not to put up signs like that anymore, but all of us still have walls in our minds that separate for us the right kinds of people from the wrong ones. The good from the bad, the safe from the unsafe. And I don't know what they are. One that we know that runs deep in our country is race. There are racial lines, whether it's white and black or Hispanic or uh, Asian or Filipino. There are ways that we understand ourselves where we see someone and we assume things about them, whether we want to or not. And maybe, maybe it's on that kind of level, but maybe you're more active in it. And it is a line that these people are not safe and these people are not good based on how they look. But it's not just race. It is race, and we need reconciliation in race. But it's more than that, too. Not more than that. It's other levels, too. There, it may be education level. There, there are people who say, I'm not familiar hanging out with other people that don't have the same education level as me. Or they didn't go to the same school as me. Or maybe on the other side, like, I don't want to hang out with really educated people because they're full of themselves and stuck up. Or maybe you separate in your mind the successful people from the unsuccessful people. You, the people who have what it takes and the people who don't. And you want to be found with the people who have what it takes. You don't want to be found with the people who don't. They're not good for you. Maybe it's the good-looking popular people and the people who go to Comic-Con. Huh? <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. Comic-Con's fun. <sighs> I wish I could take that back. <laughs> Maybe it's political walls. Maybe it's a, the, the political camp that you are in. Everyone that thinks like that, they're good in your book. But the other people, they can't help but be bad. Those people, are, I can't believe, I would never believe what they believe. I can't believe them. And right now in our country, people are saying that in both directions. Maybe, maybe it's not connecting with you yet, but who is it that you feel a natural kinship with or a natural bond? What is it, what is it that, uh, if, it's hard to think, if it's hard to think of, what is it that if you don't know someone and then you find, it out, find something out about them, you're like, ah, okay, they're, they're cool. They're, they're good people. They're good people, right? Is, maybe it's that you find out that they're a Republican, or maybe it's that you find out that they hate Republicans. And you, either way, you just relax. You're like, oh, yeah, okay, good. I can trust them. All right. We're good. <laughs> Who is it? Who's your tribe? Who is it that you feel at home around? Whether it's race or whether it's maybe you're rich and you're not comfortable around poor people or vice versa. We are increasingly fragmented. We are increasingly tribal. We are increasingly violent. And more and more, the emphasis is not placed on who is right. It's placed on whose side are you on? Because we're drawing lines and we're about to fight. And we have this attitude of, I'm on the Chicago Bulls. And you're on the other team. Hear me today. If we don't figure this out as a society, we are doomed to repeat the cycles of violence endlessly. The earth is red with blood because of this that we're preaching about today. For all our advances, and we think we're better people in the last hundred years, it has been the bloodiest hundred years in the history of humanity. We're not over this. We need this. 
as a society, as a planet, but we also need this as a church. Hear me, church, if we don't figure this out as the church, we're bound to live beneath our calling to show the world what God's love is like. Because he said, they will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. That's our next memory verse, because I only heard like three of you. <laughs> John 13, 35. <laughs> we need this. We need this. Can I get an amen? amen? We need this. And there's good news for us today, because the passage says that God has already done it. That God has already given us the means of reconciliation. How? I'm glad you asked. The rest of verse 15 says this. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body, verse 16, to reconcile both of them to God. How? Through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. On the cross, Jesus put to death our hostility. He put to death our hate. The, the word that's used there is that he killed it or that he slew it. How is that possible? Because if you know the story, there's only one person who died on the cross. He's the only one up there that that die, then how is that putting to death hostility? Well, that's what the gospel is. We deserve hostility because of our hostility to God and because of what we've done to each other. Because the dividing walls that we set up run even into the church. We deserve hostility. And yet what Jesus did on the cross, he put it to death by taking it on himself. He took the hostility that we deserve on himself, on the cross. That's what we mean when we say he became sin who knew no sin. He never sinned. He's the only one in history who has never sinned, and yet he was put to death for sin, for our sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Here's what unites us. When you realize that he died not only for your sin, but also for the sin of the people that are hostile toward you. And the sin of the, of the people that you are hostile toward. A few years ago, uh, Hannah and I were um, meeting with a couple, just counseling in their marriage and, and talking about reconciliation. And as we you know, listened and prayed and just talked for a few hours, something that came to my mind that the Spirit put on my heart to share in that moment was that you guys need to see that Jesus died for your spouse's sin against you, not just your sins. If you believe that he died for your sins and you find grace in that, you need to start believing that he also died for your spouse's sin. I'm stepping on some nerves today with all the spouses here. <laughs> the sin that you're angry about, Jesus died for. Do you guys see how that gives us the ability to reconcile? There's only one cross. Because God has shown us that there's really only one category of people, sinners. Sinners who need grace. That's what makes this one new humanity possible. It's that we realize that we all need saving from our sin. And that when Jesus died, he died for the sin of all. Amen? There's not a different Jesus or a different cross for Jews and Gentiles. Are you guys seeing this? There's not a different Jesus or a different cross for white and black. There's not a different cross for Democrat and Republican. There's not a different cross for male and female. There's not a different cross for rich and poor. There's not a different cross for Mexican and American. There's not a different cross for the homeless and the hedge fund manager. There's not a different cross. There's one Jesus. There's one he had one body and he died on one cross and he died once for all for sin. 
And that's how he killed the hostility, because he took away our right. He destroyed the barrier. When he died, he died for the hostility that you feel. He took away your right to hate others. And he took away their right for you to hate them. If he died for your sins, then you better believe that he died for other people's sins. Are you guys with me? There's one cross. There's one Jesus. He brought the two groups together in one body. And he killed their hostility on the cross. And then he rose again so that they could be one new humanity. What does that mean to be one new humanity? It means that in the church, God brings together people who would never get along or belong together apart from Jesus. Anyone thankful for that? (laughs) In the church, we see groups that they have no reason to be together (laughs) in the world's way of looking at things. In our own, uh, the eyes of our flesh, the way we've grown up and learned how to deal with life, there are groups in the church that have no reason to be together, and the only reason they're brought together is by the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. And they're made a new people. Because they see that there's one type of people, sinners, and now there's one new humanity, people, sinners who are saved by grace. It's not that we lose our ethnic or cultural or national or racial identities. God is not colorblind. He celebrates the differences and the diversities we have. He created them and they glorify him. It's not that we lose those things, but it's that in the church, when we, when we are saved by God's grace, we're not just saved as individuals. We're saved into one body. You know how many churches there are in San Diego? One. We're saved into one body. So we, we've been brought in together. It's not that we lose all our other identities. It's that they pale in comparison to the new identity that we have in Christ. They pale in comparison to the new identity we share in Christ. They lose their primary position. Is this making sense? I'm no longer how I've understood myself to be. First, what I am first is a Christian. What I am first is saved by God's grace. We are one new humanity. Christ takes first place in our lives, and it shows up in his church all over the world and here in this body. Think about it this way. If, you, if you're part of a, a CrossFit gym or a soccer club or uh, I picked on Comic-Con earlier, if you like to go to Comic-Con, not picking on it, I promise. If you do any one of those things, you, you meet people and you, you, you share connections with them, right? You feel like someone gets you, and you, but you only have a few points of connection usually with them. It's that interest that you're gathered around, right? It's, you know, it's getting yoked or it's not that I can do that, but... Um, or playing soccer, or you know, talking about the, the movies or the comics that are coming out. There's a few points of interest that you share. Uh, let's do another level. Let's say we're talking about your racial identity. If there's someone who has the same race or cultural heritage as you, uh, if you um, Chinese people, you meet other Chinese people, or, or Filipino, or African American, or, or whatever it is, you connect with people maybe on a few thousand points of interest, right? Maybe you share the same language, or you share the same history, and you share kind of the same understandings of how things go on. But your Christian identity, what this passage is saying is that you share more in common than even the people that you grew up with on the same street. This is why, this is why uh, 2009, when I was uh, uh, on a short-term mission trip in Kenya, and they asked me to, uh, to teach a Bible study, and the group of people in this Bible study, it was, it was, in, a, it was in a very poor area uh, apart from the city, kind of a slum area, and everyone in the Bible study was, uh, it was women who were survivors of abuse. And I spoke through an interpreter, and And some of them showed up to the Bible study with wounds that you could still see they were healing from. And you know what? I, this is why I have more in common with them than the people I grew up with on the same street in Arkansas. Because of the identity that we have in Christ, even if you don't share the same language, there is a connect. These, I am with brothers and sisters in Christ. 
Look at me today. I'm Christian first, white second. Yes. <laughs> I'm Christian first, American second. I'm Christian first, male second. I'm Christian first, college educated second or third or fourth. Galatians 3.28, this is why Paul can say, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Is he saying those things disappear? No. But he's saying our new identity is worth so much more and unites us so much more that we relate to each other based off what we have in common in Christ, that, that he picked us up when we were dead and made us alive in Christ. We share more in common than the things that we know that separate us. That explains the miracle of the first century church, Jews and Gentiles together. One new humanity. See, this is, this is why I can say the church has the greatest power for reconciliation in the world. And we need to access it. What this one new humanity means, we can be unified in our diversity. We can be very diverse, but united in Christ. This is one of the most precious things to me about our church body here today. And we, we by no means have it figured out, but what God has done here to, to bring together a diverse group of people who are worshiping together and living together and growing in Christ together, that is holy. And we need to celebrate that. Because I don't know if you know this, but when we do the Connect Coffees and we ask people, hey, you know, you could come to our church once, but why'd you come back? Because that means you liked us or something. <laughs> and one of the things people talk about is I just love seeing a diverse group of people come together and worship. Over and over. That comes up again and again. We need to praise God for that. And even though we can't, there's not one church that can do it perfectly. We can be growing in it and we can show the world what it's like to be unified. In diversity. You know what else it means is that we can squash hostility. We can squash hate and strife. We can forgive one another. We better be able to. If we believe we've been saved by grace, but we can't get over the stuff we have with each other, then we don't believe we've been saved by grace. But this means that we can. He, we can be reconciled. The, the passage says he is our peace. He is our peace. He is our living peace. Once we get a hold, once you get a hold of who you are in Christ, there's no room for dividing walls. There's no room for letting those divisions that we face every day find their way into this body. Amen? Because the playing field is completely leveled. Moving along to the next verse. Verse 17, still talking about Jesus. It says, he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. You see what that means in that passage? Who needed to hear the gospel? Well, you know that there were people who were far away and those who were near, but do you know who he preached to? Everyone. Yes, both. Both. Not a trick question. He preached to those who were far away and those who were near. He preached to the Chicago Bulls and the other team. Both needed to be saved by grace. The religious people and the irreligious people. The people who are looking for life and satisfaction and control and comfort by living after their own ways and doing what they thought was right, they needed to hear the message of peace. But the people who were looking for life and control and satisfaction by living according to God's rules and trying to manipulate him into blessing them, they needed to hear this message of peace. We all, need the, the, the playing field is level. Both come to Jesus in the same way, not by earning it, not by their performance, but by his. Both groups need Jesus and both groups have Jesus. That's why verse 18 says that. It, it ends with that beautiful 
message. For through him, that's Jesus, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Do you see that the whole Trinity is together at work to reconcile us together? Father, Son, and Spirit. And it's not different levels of access for different groups. We have the same access to the same God by the same gospel by the same grace. And that's what gives us the power to reconcile. Jesus died to reconcile you to God, and Jesus died to reconcile us to each other. You guys see how beautiful this is? You see how incredible that power we have in Christ is? Do you see what a force for good the church is meant to be? When Jesus said, by this will everyone know that you are my disciples if you love one another? What would it look like? What would it look like to tear down the wall of hostility in our hearts? Now, I don't know what wall you resonated with, but whatever it is, what would it look like to see Jesus destroy that barrier? You know, the audacity of this passage is that Paul was writing it when that wall still stood. But he's saying, even though that physical wall is there, spiritually, it's been destroyed. And you're a one in Christ. What would it look like to assume the best in each other and forgive the worst in each other? What would it look like to assume the best of the people who are in the tribe that you feel hostile toward and to forgive the worst? All the while seeking for justice. I'm not saying you abandon justice, but what would it look like in your heart to tear down the walls of hostility? Why isn't the church known for this? only going to happen when we see that that hostility he received on the cross was the hostility you deserved and I deserved. (laughs) Only the gospel can squash that hate between groups. What does it look like? We see a glimpse of it in the end of today's passage and closing with this point. Verses 19 through 22, we've talked about where you were, who you are, Close by talking about what you are. First word, consequently. So out of everything that Paul has showed us, out of everything that I've taught, here's the consequences. (laughs) You're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people. You're members of his household. So he's just, just dousing us with metaphors to let you know you were a foreigner, but now you're a citizen of God's kingdom. You were a stranger, not welcome, but now you're a member of his family. And then he switches to a building metaphor. It says, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and, be, and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him to, who? In him too, you are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. I want to make this quick because I don't want to keep you long. But we have to see the beauty of this passage. Do you see this? That we went from not allowed in the temple, not worthy of the presence of God, to becoming part of the temple in which God dwells by his spirit. Not worthy of God's presence to becoming a stone that helps house the very presence of God. That that God has has looked at the temple that's been the center of their religious life, basically where God dwells and does business for over a thousand years. And now he says, you know what? It's not just that building. I'm making a building and it's my church. In Ephesus, one of the seven wonders of the world was there, and it was a temple to uh, the goddess Artemis. Look it up. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And yet Paul was telling them, you're part of God's building, God's temple, that he's joining together and fitting. I love that image because in Roman construction, they would take these huge stones and they would turn them until they fit together perfectly. So it's not like bricks where everyone's the same and God's laying bricks to make his church. He's taking unique stones, unique in our diversity to bring us in unity, to house the presence of God and show how amazing it is that God would dwell in us. 
the dignity, the honor, the awe. I get to be part of that? That temple, that temple in Jerusalem, it's, it's gone. There's one wall left. The temple in Ephesus, it was destroyed 1,600 years ago. There's nothing left. But God's building, that's never going away. It's grown by the billions. And it's still here. And we get to be part of it. And we're called to be the place where God dwells by his spirit. This is what we need. This is what the world needs. And this is what it looks like where God's spirit dwells. If you guys would stand with me as we close in the band, you can come up and play. I'm going to pray here in a second. But as we close, before I pray, I want to ask, what is it that you need the Holy Spirit to do in your life and to make clear in your heart today? I know I shared a whole lot of stuff, but I believe and I trust that God it was speaking through this message. And there may be something that God wants to do in you. Do you need to remember where you were? Maybe, maybe it's been hard for you to appreciate grace and you need to say, Holy Spirit, show me how much I've been in need of your grace. I'm just blind to it. I need you to show me. Or maybe you need to remember who you are and the dignity and the awe that, that God has given you because you're part of his people, this one new humanity that he's making. Or maybe you need to remember what you are, that we are to represent and show the world this is what it looks like when God dwells among a people. This is how amazing and humbling and awesome and messy and crazy it can be. And yet it's all for God's glory. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day to gather in worship. We thank you for uh, the power of your word to speak and move and change hearts and lives. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would apply this word to our hearts. God, I don't want to be full of words or multiplying words. I don't want to be uh, just talking to talk, Lord. I want you to be speaking. And I trust that you're speaking in this moment, God, as we gather to worship, as we repent as we remember you, I pray that this truth that you died to save sinners, I pray that we would rejoice when one sinner repents. God, that we would know what it's like to be without hope and without you, and yet we'd also know what it's like to be near you. Pray for that in Jesus' name. Awaken our hearts, awaken our lives to this message. God, fill in the gaps. I, there's no way I can share all that's in your word or, or that the Spirit is putting on my heart, Lord, but you can fill in the gaps because we need it, God. We need to be a beacon of reconciliation in a world full of hatred and violence and division. God, we need it, and we can't do it on our own, Lord. We need it. We need you. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.